that's exactly why climate is one of the main issues, if not the main issue that young people showed up to this election and why young people in Florida showed up to the polls because we are terrified for our futures and we, we don't see the cities that we grew up in really staying afloat. It's been a whirlwind couple of weeks. Election day in America came and went and then dragged on for nearly a week as a record number of mail-in ballots were counted all across the country. Until finally, Joe Biden emerged as the winner of the presidential race on Saturday, November 7th. While President Trump continues to challenge the election results, much of the country is moving on and starting to look ahead at what comes next. We look at what that means for young climate voters who played a key role in tipping the scales to Biden in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Now, in case it isn't seared into your memory, the past week or so went a little something like this. About a minute before 10 o'clock here in the East, and we've got Iowa, Montana, Nevada, and Utah. Savannah, this is not the night that Democrats dreamed of. There is clearly uh, some an undercounted a portion of the electorate that is uh, supporting President Trump that they just didn't expect. Uh, meanwhile, we saw protests across the country erupt yesterday uh, as protesters for and against Donald Trump took to the streets. All right. President Trump, meanwhile, is rejecting any suggestion that he has lost the election. And yesterday, he returned to his Virginia golf club. Fox News alert, a live look at the big map as the race to 270 continues with Joe Biden holding 264 at this hour, Donald Trump at 214. A win in any of the key battlegrounds left would put Joe Biden over the top, as we know. After four long, tense days, we've reached a historic moment in this election. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States, winning the White House and denying President Trump a second term. The battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country. And the battle to save our planet by getting climate under control. Since being declared the winner of the 2020 election, Joe Biden has underscored that he plans to make climate change one of his top priorities upon taking office. Biden's climate platform isn't the Green New Deal plan that climate activists called for. And Democrats will have a tough time passing any progressive climate policies unless they win both Senate runoff races taking place this January in Georgia. Still, Donald Trump's defeat means that maybe, just maybe, the planet can avoid an apocalyptic future. Penn State University scientist Michael Mann warned before the election that a second term for Trump would be, quote, game over for climate. That's due to his pro-fossil fuel policies and rejection of the Paris Agreement. Leah Stokes, assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and co-host of the new podcast, A Matter of Degrees, wrote in the Boston Globe that record voter turnout for Biden, combined with exit polls showing that climate change was a top issue this cycle, means that the next administration will have a strong mandate to act on climate as an urgent priority. 
In this episode, I speak to first-time presidential election voter Troy Disselrath in East Lansing, Michigan, about why he voted for Biden, even though he and his friends were once removed from a Biden rally for protesting his climate record. I also speak to first-time presidential election voter Gabriela Rodriguez in Miami, Florida, about how youth are mobilizing around climate action in her politically divided state. Activists like Gabby and Troy, through their protests, social media campaigns, position papers, and more, have upended climate politics in recent years. This year, the Sunrise Movement and other groups mounted extensive campaigns to register and mobilize voters, and young voters in particular, to oppose President Trump and vote climate champions into office. According to a post-election analysis by Tufts University, youth turnout for the 2020 presidential election will be the highest in history, with 53 to 56% of voting-eligible young people ages 18 to 29 having cast a ballot. And it appears that climate change was a major driver of that turnout. While young Biden voters surveyed by Tufts said that the coronavirus pandemic was the top issue facing the country, followed by racism, climate change ranked third. And I'd add the caveat that asking voters to pick a single top issue is tricky, especially since climate issues often overlap with concerns about racial justice, and proposals like the Green New Deal seek to tackle these issues in tandem. But overall, 78% of young voters in the Tufts analysis said they are very or somewhat concerned about climate change. These numbers mirror a national phenomenon, where a strong majority of voters from across the political spectrum say they are worried about the threat of climate change and support clean energy. And yet, 71 million Americans voted for Donald Trump, whose disregard for the environment and climate change poses, as the LA Times editorial board put it, a mortal threat. So while Biden's win represents a new era in the climate fight, America remains deeply divided and the path forward remains murky. To that end, in the second half of this episode, I speak to Andreas Carellas about his new book, Climate Courage, and how to advance climate solutions in these polarized times. But first, we hear from first-time climate voters. So here are those conversations. My name is Troy Disselrath. I am a junior, 20 years old at Michigan State University in the James Madison College for Public Affairs, where I double major in social relations and policy and comparative cultures and politics. Um, and I'm also, outside of my, my role as a student, one of the founders and hub coordinators of the Sunrise Movement at Michigan State. I understand that climate voter is also, you know, a way that you identified. Tell me why that is. Yeah. So this was my first presidential election that I had the opportunity to vote in. And for me, identifying as a climate voter goes all the way back to my upbringing in St. Clair, Michigan, which is a working class town of almost exclusively white residents. There I had two public school teachers for parents who were some of the only people that were interested in talking about social justice. And, you know, throughout my my childhood, I was taught about the privilege unfairly given to someone who looks, loves, and prays like I do, and how this privilege is anathema to the inherent dignity and equality of all people. And I saw time and time again with, you know, an unjust and fraudulent war that killed tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians with a great recession that led to members of my own family losing their jobs, their homes, their savings, um, and a, a water crisis in my home state where the state government poisoned an entire city 
predominantly of, of African-Americans uh, in the name of fiscal responsibility. And all of those crises were linked by the singular moral failing that those least responsible for the devastation and destruction were forced to bear their greatest burdens. And so that sounds like a long-winded way of getting into it, but essentially with the climate crisis, I see that moral principle on a world scale where those least responsible in the global South in particular are already beginning to feel the effects of climate change, climate catastrophe, really. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it because climate touches everything. It will affect water supplies. It will affect economic standing. It will affect human lives and to varying degrees. And in fact, it already has. That's one of the most beautiful parts about the the modern environmental justice movement. And my lens through it is the Sunrise Movement in particular, that it's the first time ever, you know, we fight on behalf of a Green New Deal and the Green New Deal's basic principles are, well, there's two halves to it. First, what needs to be done? That's what traditional um, climate analysts, activists have fought for. You know, when you think of climate change, traditionally, you've thought, throw down solar panels, put up wind turbines, build electric cars, stop the that lonely polar bear from floating away on a piece of ice. So that's what we've always thought of. But the second half of the Green New Deal is how will we make that transition of energy systems justly? And it's a set of promises to working people, because we understand that we need to, in order to sell this, we need to make it about the abolition of of working people um, of all races in this country. Do you feel like that's something that a lot of your peers get? Or is it more like climate activists are really understanding of these issues and well-spoken on these issues? Or is it pretty mainstream among your friend groups and resonating widely? I do. Um, I, I, in my year and a half almost in the movement, um, I have been able to speak with young people like myself, young people from my hometown who I know vehemently disagree with me on a lot of other political issues. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with a group of like 40 seniors in Ohio that wanted to learn more about it um, and could kind of resonate with the, you know, they grew up with a kind of anti-Vietnam War tradition. And so they could resonate with the way that we go about our business now. So yeah, I definitely think it's resonating. So I'm curious, though, you you know, you mentioned you're a you're a first time presidential election voter. What did you think of Joe Biden? Were you excited to vote for him? And what did it feel like to cast that vote at the end of the day? Yeah, um, I was excited to vote for Joe Biden because um, his climate plan is truly the, the first comprehensive um, and and really well thought out plan that we've seen in in American presidential politics. And the alternative is someone that thinks that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. So on that front, I was excited. But at the same time, um, you know, the Sunrise Movement has been very open about the problems that we've had with uh, President-elect Biden. And I mean, in March of this year, myself and about 20 other activists from Sunrise and some Detroit um, activist groups were thrown out of a Biden rally at Renaissance High School um, for protesting uh, him on climate. Um, he has since moved on many of our targets to get closer to the Green New Deal framework. But yeah, I, I found it ironic that the two people at the top of, of 
my ticket, Joe Biden and Senator Gary Peters, were people who had one thrown myself and some friends out of a rally, and two, Gary Peters had had some of my friends arrested when uh, we we protested him for not signing on to a Green New Deal. So um, it's a it's a complex relationship that the movement has to the Democratic Party, but we feel like this has given us a chance to fight on and live live another day. Do you identify as a Democrat or or no? Ooh. Yeah, that's a loaded question. I think um, I certainly come election time, devote a lot of time to making phone calls for Democrats. And I always vote Democratic. But I spend the other nine to 10 months of my year trying to be a pain in their butt and push them to be better and to uh, cease taking corporate donations and begin listening more to communities of color, indigenous people, uh, uh, and young people. What do you think now that it looks like Joe Biden will become president? In fact, he won the election, even though we're seeing some legal wrangling happening. But uh, at this moment in time, Republicans stand a good chance of holding on to the Senate, which could block action. So how does that make you feel? Because you're trying to push the Democrats to be more progressive here, but you're in this political system that could have more logjam. So what's your feeling about that moving forward? And how do you think you can be effective in creating change? Yeah, so it's, it's, that's a tough question. Obviously, we have these two opportunities in Georgia to, to get the narrowest of majorities in the Senate. but you know, the movement treats electoralism as kind of the, it's kind of the third rail, how it's spoken about in the movement. It's, it's something that we feel we need to do when the time comes. But otherwise, we are all about building our people power right now. We're trying to get as many people educated as possible, so that come 2022, we can hopefully have a more resounding victory when, you know, and I think it's 22 Republicans are up then versus only 12 Democrats. And President-elect Biden, when he gets into office, will have uh, plenty of opportunities to do to take some executive action on climate. I know he's asserted that he'll rejoin the Paris framework on day one. So uh, things like that, we can make progress on right away. And also Sunrise is a very decentralized movement in some regards as well. So a lot of us will be trying to make progress at the state level, too. So you mentioned that you, you know, you'll go speak to other peers that, you know, you're trying to do more outreach to educate people on what the Green New Deal is. I'm curious, do you ever come across people who are resistant to it or maybe just don't know much about it or aren't that interested and convince them to get more interested, convince them to learn more and get excited and get engaged? And if so, what do those conversations look like? What does success look like and how do they unfold? I'm wondering how this is uh, how this movement's building. When you talk about the Green New Deal, especially because we try to couch it in a few things, one personal narrative is a big part. Um, talking about what we all stand to gain from a just transition always helps. But we also couch it in kind of the the history behind what a New Deal was and how we're trying to complete the the original goals of the New Deal. We couch it in kind of a moral vision for the world, and and then we talk about what the policies are um, as well. And generally, people don't come away from that com- conversation uninterested. The only major critique that I often get is that, you know, this is such a, uh, quote unquote, radical departure from where policymaking has been, at least since the 1980s. You know, we've kind of had this this framework um, of Reaganomics since then, of privatization and deregulation and cutting government spending on all things except for defense. So it, it's kind of, we're fighting or 
uh, fighting an uphill battle against that ideology that's kind of become very pervasive in the minds of a lot of Americans. So we at least intrigue everyone with our discussion of the Green New Deal, but then it's a matter of kind of making that secondary argument of, hey, we've had two of the three worst economic collapses in, in U.S. history in the last 12 years. We've, I'm, I'm 20 years old. We've been at war almost every day of my life. Uh, all of these things are connected. And when we try to make a pitch for the livable future that we believe the Green New Deal provides, um, it, it often does win people over. One last question. I'm just curious, what do you want to see happen by the time you vote in your second presidential election? I want to see, wow, that's, tr- that's tough because the election has felt like such an event horizon where I can see up to it, but not after it. Um, I want to see electorally the Democrats take the Senate um, in in 2022 uh, and hold on to the House because I feel that that's our best way to to big federal action on climate. But more than that, I want to keep with my friends in the movement waking up people that are otherwise, that, that care about climate change, care about the climate, but are politically disengaged. I want to see millions more of them willing to go out on that limb, to go to a protest, to donate to the movement, to, to some way put their uh, foot on the scale. Because um, if we're at that point four years from now, then we still very much have a chance to win this whole thing. In saving the planet? That's the whole thing, yeah. <laughs> Troy, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. My full name is Gabriela Rodriguez, and I'm a member of the Sunrise Movement in Miami, Florida. So I understand this was your first time voting in a presidential election, and I think there's been a lot of emotion leading up to this election. People have been working on the issues. They've been trying to get out the vote. There's a lot of tension around who would win. I'm just wondering to start things off, how do you feel having cast that ballot, and how do you feel today as it looks like Joe Biden will be the winner? It feels amazing. Casting my ballot was a really impactful feeling for me because it was the first time that I voted for a presidential election. And it was the first time that I knew I was voting in the most monumental election of our lifetime so far. How it feels now knowing that Joe Biden is on his way to the White House is also really relieving. Um, It's relieving because we removed somebody out of office who did not believe in science, did not hold human decency, and and now we have somebody that we can actually work with. So it's relieving, and I'm just extremely proud of my generation. I know that that work is already starting. I think the Sunrise Movement has already put out a video where they're talking about the names of people that they want to see in a Biden administration who would put climate front and center. How are you thinking about next steps right now? Yeah. So Sunrise Movement put out a climate mandate and they're calling for the creation of an office of climate mobilization. And that really also kind of captures what I'm thinking for myself as an individual where, you know, with a Biden presidency, with a Biden administration, there is no point in going back to normal. There is no point in us going back to how things were before Donald Trump. If anything, that his cabinet needs to be full of progressive people without ties to the fossil fuel industry, without ties to corporate lobbyists and people who are representative of the United States and understand that the climate crisis, they have an 
the ambition to tackle the crisis. So with the calling of a climate mandate and, you know, suggesting these, these individuals, these incredible people who should sit on uh, Biden's cabinet and with um, the creation of an office of climate mobilization, Biden could have a really historic administration and, and create a lot of change for this country where he's not bringing things back to how they were pre 2016. He's, building the United States back better than it was before. And that's something that me and my fellow activists, the fellow youth are really excited to work on and push for. Awesome. Yeah, I think some of the names I saw were calling for Elizabeth Warren to head up the Treasury Department, uh, Representative Barbara Lee to become Secretary of State. Lots of names there to, to think over. So what made climate a top issue for you? Did you see it firsthand or is it something you just, you know, you you learned about or what made it really resonate and become a top voting issue for you? That's a great question because the climate crisis is we here in Miami, Florida, we are ground zero for climate change. We are the poster child. We are the epitome of what climate injustice looks like. And there is not a day that I wake up living in Miami, Florida, my home, where I don't see and think and feel the climate crisis. And I'll give you one simple example. Last weekend, Hurricane Eta passed through Miami, Florida. And thankfully, we weren't hit hard, such as other Central American countries were. But we have been dealing with flooding. And I have a friend who lives in Hialeah, a low-lying neighborhood in Miami, Florida, and his house got flooded. And that's just normal now. It's normal. And that's just one example of how at least once a month, there is a time in Miami, Florida, where you come into contact with the climate crisis. And as a young person living here who wants to protect the people she loves and the city she loves, the climate crisis is everything. It's, it's the reason for all the work that I do, especially being somebody from ground zero, Miami, Florida, for the climate catastrophe. I guess, what would you say about the peers in your community? Obviously, Florida was like ground zero in the election, broadly figuring out which way it would go for which presidential candidate. I'm just curious what you hear from your fellow young voters. Is climate as big of a concern for them or do you see space to grow this movement or what's your assessment there? Because it seems like the state's fairly divided, at least overall. Yeah, um, you make some good points. The state is divided overall, it seems like it. But I would say that the vast, vast majority of young people in Florida, Republican, Democrat, wherever they live in the state, are aware and concerned about climate change. And that's something that we see growing even on the right side of politics here in Florida. Climate change is something that we've all accepted at this point, and even more so, of course, under young people in Florida. And that's exactly why climate is one of the main issues, if not the main issue that young people showed up to this election and why young people in Florida showed up to the polls, because we are terrified for our futures and we, we don't see the cities that we grew up in really staying afloat here in Florida. So I would say definitely young people here in Florida are very engaged in the issue and want action, but there's always room to go and there's always room to bring people into the movement. What would be an action you'd want for your community? Is there something on a local level you'd point to that you'd be like, this would really help us adapt or mitigate the climate crisis here? My first thought goes, of course, to carbon neutrality, like just divesting from fossil fuels as a city. We have to. That is like the number one thing that we have to do to avoid all of the other consequences. But then I would also like to mention that 
something that I see very specific to my community, kind of hinging on your question a bit more, is something called climate gentrification, where as the sea level is rising, it is actually causing our black and brown families here to be pushed out of their homes because they live on higher ground. So wealthy investors are, are taking that land and picking up the prices. And it's a clear, uh, clear example of climate injustice and environmental racism. And that is an issue that I would love to see tackled. And I know that legislation, similar to the Green New Deal, and you know, coming up with something like the Green New Day, for example, to represent Miami-Dade County, and just doing everything through an environmental lens through a social justice lens would be an incredible initiative here in my home in Miami. What do you hope things look like as you head into the next presidential election, the second time you'll vote in a presidential election in four years? What would be your dream for the context to be as you cast that ballot? I hope that I don't feel like I need to vote for the survival of my future and my city. I hope that I know it's a lot to ask for, and the climate crisis is, a, is an issue that we're going to deal with, and we're going to deal with the impacts for the next few decades, regardless of what we do today. But I hope that in four years when I vote again, I don't feel as heavy of a weight to, to put a ballot for, for my literal future. So I just hope that the climate crisis isn't as big as a threat or, and a worry, and we really take it under control in the next four years. I think a lot of people share that sentiment. Gabby, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Andreas Carellas is the founder and executive director of Revolve, a nonprofit organization that finances solar energy projects for other nonprofits that otherwise wouldn't have access to solar finance. Andreas is also the author of the new book, Climate Courage. How Tackling Climate Change Can Build Community, Transform the Economy, and Bridge the Political Divide in America. That's right, Bridge the Divide. I know you're intrigued. The book has been heaped with praise by renowned environmentalist Bill McKibben, climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, Stanford University professor Mark Jacobson, and many other prominent names in the climate and energy community. In this conversation, Andreas makes the case for a new narrative around climate action that's based on a positive vision of the future. So you are now a first-time author, and Climate Courage, I've had a chance to you know read through most of it, and it really is an amazing book for how it frames how to tackle the climate crisis in this divided time. And you start the book by saying, this is a book about climate change solutions. It's also about helping America find its way through a divided, troubling time. I believe that these challenges are intimately related. And so I'm really curious what you meant by that. How is the division in America related to fighting climate change? So this is a great question. And I think it's related in in a few ways. And you know, to start off, I want to say we have been approaching this from sort of, well, you know, the Democrats think that this, Republicans think that about how do we solve climate change or, or we're not going to work together. And what we realize now, it's 2020, we haven't made much progress, is that we have to work together. There is no more um, sort of pointing fingers. It's we have to come together at the table uh, and, and, and sort of hash it out in order to solve the climate crisis. Like the entire uh, sort of, you know, rest of history depends on what we, uh, you know, in American politics can do at this particular moment. And the flip side of how it's related is if we were to look at this question of 
how do we bring Americans back together during a divided time, like leaving climate change out, like just saying, how is it that, you know, we could, you know, build trust and build uh, a sense of um, sort of connection among Americans? You know, what you would think of is, is what's something that people care about? What is something that everybody cares about? What is something that that can bring people to the table? And the, the answer is, uh, perhaps surprisingly, clean energy, right? Is that clean energy is this, uh, you know, 85% of Americans, you know, want to see 100% clean energy. There is virtually nothing else that 85% of Americans agree on, uh, you know, I would venture to, to guess. Um, and so I think that it's, it's sort of, uh, in order to solve the climate change, we have to come together and also in order to come together, we have to find something that's big enough, that's that that's inspiring enough to, uh, to, to, to bring us together and, and climate change and our sort of collective uh, fate uh, and, and, and our passion for clean energy is really what I think can do it. I take that point. It just doesn't feel that way. You know, it doesn't feel like that's happening. It is this existential issue, climate change, and people joke that, oh, if there was an alien invasion, the world would finally come together. And, and in some ways, climate change is that thing. It's this big, daunting issue. And yet we see it playing out uh, not that way, particularly in America, as it filters through the political system and people have different ideas on on what to do and whether or not the problem's even real. You know, we're still stuck there. So let's put it in this present moment. You know, we're talking as the United States has just gone through a highly divisive election on the heels on the heels of a very controversial presidency where President Trump did call climate change a hoax. And America has become so polarized that some family members can't even have holidays together, let alone what, let alone discuss what to do about climate change. So in light of that, how can people really find climate courage, as you put it, in this time, given that it really doesn't seem like climate is rallying people the way you describe? Yeah, no, this is a really good point. Um, uh, a few things. So, so the first is that uh, we tend to think about uh, climate change in a very sort of theoretical way, right? It's it's this it's this long term uh, effect that's going to to impact us and the plans of how do we get there? How do we transform our entire economy? Um, it's really it's really kind of a big question, and most people don't really know how to think about it, how to process it. And so, what we actually have to do in order to rally, in order to get us sort of motivated and on the path is um, point to examples, tell stories. This is what's already happening in our communities. Um, here are the, the, the communities, the, the cities, the towns, the states uh, that are implementing clean energy policy, that are making the clean energy investments. Um, these are the success stories. This is the momentum that we already have on the path. Um, and those are the types of, once, once we start to tell those stories more, um, you'll see people start to engage more because we can visualize the path forward. Right. And I think that actually, you know, this election um, actually, I think, points to that. You know, I think Joe Biden, you know, ran on a climate platform. Right. He said, I'm going to put uh, climate and clean energy first and foremost as part of the as part of the recovery. And and he won and he won by you know, he, he got more votes than, than any uh, president in history. And so uh, I think that that, you know, is the mandate that people uh, have now given to say we want to focus on climate change, um, and, and and I think you know one of the things that Joe Biden did so well is that 
he, he made it very clear what it was going to look like. We're going to have 100% clean electricity by 2035. We're going to decarbonize by 2050. We're going to invest $2 trillion. We're going to create all these jobs, right? Um, so I think, you know, making it really crystal clear as to, uh, you know, what is the next step forward and how it's going to benefit people reduces our fear, reduces our anxiety, and it allows us to come to the table and talk about it. If we... Um, you know, paint a picture that's too uh, sort of big and, and, and sort of scary. It's hard for people to engage in the conversation because once we're uh, in a political conversation, oh, this is a Democrat telling me, you know, what we're going to do, how big government is going to come in and sort of rule our lives, um, then the fear factor kicks in and uh, we sort of, you know, we, we shut down, right? And so we need to be able to approach the conversation in a way that is um, that's tangible, that's based in reality, uh, and that allows people to uh, see what's next. And, and, and those stories will be able to perpetuate and get more and more people excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about as a movement, we first need to reframe the narrative. We need to focus on the opportunity more than the challenge, because when people are bombarded with fear-based messages, they become immobilized. Yeah, I'm basically saying that uh, we need to flip the conversation of climate change on its head um, that in, you know, we, you can look at the climate crisis in two ways, right? You can look at it. You can look at the data. There, there's plenty of data out there to support two very different views. You can look at it and say, you know, uh, you know, two weeks ago, uh, a typhoon, you know, slammed into uh, the Philippines and it's the the, the, the most powerful storm that's that's ever uh, made landfall in, in the world, right, in history. Um, and you can look at all the data that points to how uh, dire the situation is. And then you can also uh, turn and say, uh, you know, the International Energy Agency put out a report yesterday uh, or two days ago uh, that said that, you know, by uh, the, over the coming years, we are seeing clean energy uh, develop faster than than we could have ever imagined. Uh, that we're seeing uh, wind and solar outpacing uh, coal and natural gas uh, in the next three years. So so you can look at either set of data, and what the psychological research uh, points to is that if we're focusing on the negative, if we're focusing on the doom and gloom, then we shut down and we we don't uh, we, our, our focus gets very narrow. Um, and that doesn't create it doesn't give us the opportunity for creative solutions or ideas or discussion or engaging people on the opposite side. It allows us to focus down and, and sort of get a, get fearful. Whereas if we are looking at the positive side, if we're looking at the amount of clean energy jobs, if we're looking at, you know, uh, Mark Jacobson points out that, uh, you know, with 100 percent clean energy, you know, we'll be saving a trillion dollars a year on electricity costs uh, and we'll be creating a net two million jobs. Right. And so if we are talking about the positive, uh, the economic growth that we have, then that gets people excited and it opens up our sort of creative juices and, and it allows us to engage and, and be more playful uh, around you know, what it is that we think uh, is possible. Well, yeah, you mentioned the, the pace there. So I feel like that's where a big fault line ends up getting created is around accepting perhaps a slower pace of change in order to bring others along who are maybe just not engaged on this issue or maybe actively don't want it. And so you have to move slower in order to create consensus versus just 
driving ahead, you know, being as progressive as possible on these issues. So I guess, do you see that being in conflict at all, having to accept slower progress in order to get more people on the same page? Yeah, I, that's a, this, is, this is such a good question. And I think, you know, you see a lot of folks uh, with with very different kind of strategies around that, right? Like, no, this is, um, you know, we are in a dire emergency and we needed to change yesterday. And so, you know, we are going to sh- stop nothing short of, you know, you know, accelerating to 100, you know, 100 miles an hour in terms of change, you know, off the bat. And that's that's true from right. It's like we, we did need to change yesterday and we do need, you know, absolute radical transformation in you know all sectors of the economy in order to solve the climate change. However, when you look at the psychology of how is it that we can get people together, how can we um, come to an agreement on the path forward? Like we we again, I think the takeaway that that's really important for me after looking at this issue for a long time is. We can't get there in a bifurcated effort. We can't get there saying, oh, you know, it's just going to be the Democrats that have to, you know, take over all the branches of the government and, you know, hope that we get to keep it for long enough to make a difference. Like that's not going to work. So we have to we have to build the bridge. And in order to build the bridge um, you know, in the book, I reference uh, the the work of a, a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, who uh, who writes about this analogy he calls the elephant um, and the rider. And basically our rider is our kind of rational mind and our elephant is our emotional mind. And um, despite our best intentions, the elephant is actually what's typically making most of our decisions. And so, and the elephant is, you know, like a big elephant, it, it can kind of get scared easily. And so when we're approaching a change, something that changes scary and changing our behavior and changing our rules and our laws is very scary. And so in order to not spook the elephant of people who are not already there with us, right, in order to make it palatable for people, you have to let them, uh, you know, the the example that the the Heath brothers uh, use in the book, uh, building off the analogy is they say, if you want an elephant um, to kind of get moving, you have to lower the high bar so low that the elephant can step over it, right? Like you have to make it so easy to get started that you get started, right? Um, so the point is, it's, it's, we know where the technology is going. It's a question of getting people emotionally on board. And, I, and for that, I do think that you have to make it palatable um, to get people on board uh, starting, not starting slow, but starting simple so that people can take a simple action. They can get on board. They can see why this is important to them. And then they can put their own muscle into it. Who do you think that that responsibility falls on? You know, a lot of people listen to the show, work on these issues every day, and they are in the camp that feels like things just already aren't moving fast enough. And so do you think that those same people have to then sort of be the bigger person and make the additional effort to cater messaging so that it is appealing to people who are not on board yet? Um, is that just sort of the reality of it? I, I do. I, I think that that, um, that is the reality of it. Um, but, but, I, but I want to clarify something here. It's, 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 it's the reality that people who already care about climate change uh, need to communicate and need to think about how they communicate about it. But I don't think it's as divided as, you know, Democrats and Republicans. It's on Democrats that have to do this. And, and I think that's actually you know, one of the big takeaways from my research is that um, despite what we hear in the news, 
that it's this it's super it's super divided right um despite what the politicians say which obviously they have their own agendas when you look at the data right when you look at you know the yale climate change communication uh research you know what they show is that the amount of people who care about climate change who are alarmed about climate change and concerned about climate change is rising dramatically the amount of people who are dismissive or denying of climate change is is shrinking dramatically so so the consensus uh, among Americans is actually much more um, sort of on par than we think, meaning Republicans get that climate change is real. So it's actually like a myth that there's this massive like, oh, you know, denial happening. It's it's on the community level and person to person level. People know that it's happening. The onus then falls on all of us who understand and care about the issue to bring it up. And to talk about it, right? To have the conversations, to sit down with your family, to sit down with your neighbor, sit down with your coworker, and just have a frank conversation because it's almost like we're afraid to talk about it because we hear this message in the news. Oh, you can't talk, you know, oh, it's so divided. It's such a divisive political issue. It's really not. To bring it back to Joe Biden, like, I think that Joe Biden proved that that's the case. It's like, He's the first president that led with this and said, this is going to be my top priority issue. And he won, right? And he won by more votes than ever, right? So, so that's the type of, you know, sort of myth busting, you know, that, that that I think we're in the moment of right now. Well, you mentioned having conversations at a local level. So so you tell the story of Hada Alkaf and the Wisconsin Green Muslims in your book. And I thought this was an interesting anecdote because it may challenge some people's perceptions of who an environmentalist is, you know, sort of cue the Prius and puffy vest image in some people's minds. Um, and so could you tell the story? So, yeah, I, I met uh, Hada uh, a number of years ago uh, in Wisconsin. We uh, have, you know, Revolve has our uh, solar ambassador team uh we have teams at University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and, and also Madison. And uh, and so through our installer in Wisconsin, a company called Convergence Energy, uh, you know, I had a friend who said, hey, look, you've got to meet Huda. She's doing this incredible work. And so uh, I was out there for uh, for ribbon cutting and uh, and I went and met with her at the mosque. Uh, and she basically has sort of single handedly started this movement uh, in Wisconsin um, where, and, and first of all, she's, you know, very educated, a PhD. She's, um, you know, has a PhD in ecology, I believe, um, you know, is deep into the environmental movement and has basically gone around, uh, starting with, with faith communities, um, and has broadened it over time, uh, to talk about, um, helping, uh, helping spread the word about clean energy and particularly, um, talking about the relation to, uh, the Muslim faith, right? That, that, that according to her faith, the protection of the environment is super important. And so she's been going out and giving presentations uh, to, to mosques and other uh, houses of worship around Wisconsin for many years, um, giving them this, the opportunity to go solar and, and telling them about the benefits of it. Um, and, and in fact, she was actually inspired because, uh, you know, the way she described it is in a post 9-11 world. Uh, where there was so much uh, sort of discrimination uh, against Muslims. Um, she wanted to use the environment and use uh, their uh, sort of uh, embracing of clean energy as a way to say, hey, look, um, to, to reduce that sense of otherness, right? To, to, to reduce that, that sense of discrimination because saying, look, this is something that we all care about. This is something that we all can get behind. Um, and she's been a huge inspiration to me, um, as well as many in the uh, in, in the faith community um, that are working around climate change. 
right? Going back to that initial thesis of the book, I guess, that the divisions in America and action to protect the environment could actually, you know, the solutions in both of those arenas may be one of the same, or they could draw from one another. And it sounds like that anecdote, uh, you know, is an example of that. I guess I just want to end with, uh, you know, the title of your last chapter. It is called Rolling Up Our Sleeves. So if you had to leave our audience with one call to action, one thing you'd have them roll up their sleeves and do, uh, what would it be? This is a great question. And I've thought a lot about this over the years. And I started my own nonprofit because I wanted to give people the ability to take action. Um, And, you know, what I've sort of narrowed it down to is that in the environmental movement, we are often told to take action in one of two ways. Um, We're often told that you should, you know, reduce your own individual footprint, you know, drive less, you know, fly less, you know, use a reusable grocery bag. And then we're told on the other side is, well, let's just hope that the leaders solve it. And, you know, we will, you know, sign petitions and send an email to Congress and, um, you know, go to a march once a year and, and hope for the best. And, and those are both rather disempowering, right, for different reasons. But, but people have generally, and I think we can all agree that if you care about climate change, uh, one of the biggest frustrations that we might have is, this feeling of what can I do, right? Like, what can I do? Um, you know, I'm just little old me and it's this huge problem. And psychologically, I get sort of stunted because there's nothing that I feel like I can do that can have a real impact. And so my sort of answer to that is that between those two uh, worlds of individual action and sort of hoping our leaders solve it at the federal level or the international level is what we can do at the community level. And at the community level, you can do a whole lot of stuff. You can do really, really cool work. Um, and at the community level, you can create real impact. You can work with other people, which is an important piece to be empowered, is to know that you're not working alone. Um, and you can create impact and benefits that you can then create a story around and tell that story. Um, so, for example, you know the work that we do with Revolve uh, – you know, we empower uh, volunteers, we call our solar ambassadors, to go into their community and help a local nonprofit go solar. And they, you know, tell them about solar and they walk them through the entire process. And, and when the nonprofit ends up going solar, they hold a big ribbon cutting and they get the story in the press. And oftentimes it's on TV. And you're able to sort of demonstrate to a larger community the benefits of clean energy. Um, how, for example, if this uh, you know, food bank goes solar, that they now have more resources to put into uh, the work that they do in feeding the hungry, right? And those are the types of stories, those are the types of connections that we want to make in people's minds um, so that they can feel more connected to the issue and see how clean energy benefits them directly. So, um, you know, my big takeaway in terms of rolling up our sleeves is uh, get together with people in your community and talk about it. You know, on the on the Climate Courage website, climatecourage.us, uh, we have uh, Climate Courage circles, so you can sort of start a conversation in your community. Uh, and this is, you know, Catherine Hayhoe, who is the leading climate scientist uh, and, and climate communicator, who wrote the forward for the book. You know, the thing that she says is the most important thing we can do is just talk about it. Just talk about climate change, and and, and I repeat that often and throughout the book. And so I think you know what we need to do is start by talking to our neighbors about climate change letting them know that we care about this, asking what they think about it, um, and then 
deciding what can we do at the community level that can have a real impact um, and then use those stories uh, to amplify the message to a larger audience. All right, some actionable items there. Well, Andreas, thank you so much. As you mentioned, the website is climatecourage.us. So Andreas, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And that marks the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate to continue the conversation. I'm Julia Piper. Until next time.